Thank you, Laura. Laura was my amazing editor of this book, too, so <laughs> the book wouldn't be what it would have been without Laura. And thank you for coming to hear about Willard Fraser. I'm first going to answer the sort of inevitable question of how I got involved and interested in Willard Fraser, because when I was, I lived in Helena and Bozeman, you know, from 1963 to 1968 when he was mayor and I knew nothing about him. Uh, but then um, I went to the Breadloaf School of English and of course as an English teacher I knew quite a bit, a little bit, about Robert Frost, loved him. And he was a very much of a presence at Breadloaf where I got my masters. He has a cabin just near the campus and he was very involved. So obviously Robert Frost was someone that I admired and knew about. So I was on the plane between Connecticut and Montana and I had this book that had vignettes of different uh, authors and there was a photo of Robert Frost with his granddaughter, Robin Fraser, in Billings, Montana. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to look into this a little bit more. And then I found out that Robin Fraser's father was the mayor of Billings. So I learned that he had his papers in Billings. I started to read his papers and I thought, wow, this guy is really much more than the mayor of Billings, Montana. And I was thinking about writing an article and I thought, no, there's way too much here for an article. I have to write a book. So that's how this all began. Um, so before we start to talk about how Willard Fraser earned the epithet of mayor of all outdoors, I'm going to just sketch a little bit about his background. He was born in Kansas, He was, um, but then because he was an asthmatic, um, they came to Billings where the air was drier. He was seven years old when he came to Billings. He grew up in Billings. He went to college at the University of Colorado. During his Colorado summers, he worked at an archaeological digs in the southwest. And uh, this was in the 1930s. And one of the young men that he worked with was Dwight Morrow, the brother of Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Uh, Dwight Morrow is the man with the pipe, and Willard is on the extreme right here. And of course, the Morrows knew the Frosts uh, from Amherst. And Marjorie Frost, the Frost's youngest daughter, was undergoing treatment for TB in Colorado. And so Dwight said, Willard, you should meet Marjorie. They did, and the rest is history. They were married. They met in uh, 31, and they married in 33 in Billings. And uh, this picture of Robert and Eleanor was taken in Chicago, in uh, Colorado, the summer that Willard met his future in-laws. Um, so Willard and Marjorie were married in, uh, in Billings in 1933. And uh, this photo is of her, I believe, in the winter of 1933-34 in Montana. Unfortunately, um, in the spring of 1934, after Robin was born, everything okay? I'm just, I'm just turning it. <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Yeah, I can hear. Him. Thank you. 
Um, unfortunately, Robin was born in March of 1934. Marjorie was afflicted with childbed fever, and sadly, she died in May of 1934. So, but right now, today, our focus is Willard as somebody who was so proud of Montana and was probably the biggest proponent of Montana almost ever, I think. Because of his avid interest in government and politics, though, he was determined to gain public office. He was defeated in no fewer than 11 elections before he became mayor of Billings in 1963. He was re-elected three times. It was during these years as mayor, from 1963 to 1972, that he became the mayor of all outdoors. As um, Laura said he was a catalyst for change in other areas too. He supported marginalized citizens and he gave them a voice. He waged a war against pollution in all forms, including cigarette smoking and dilapidated properties. He brought business to business. He brought young people into government. But today, obviously, we're, we're focusing mostly on his advocating for Montana and his efforts in preserving historic and scenic sites, which now draw scores of visitors. Um, he's really at a, a, a foundation of many of these current tourist attractions. An astute PR man, Willard received almost daily press coverage for witty quotes, eccentric behavior, and declaimed hyperboles. However, the fact that he was viewed as a character sometimes obscured the fact that he really made a difference and accomplished much. It's fitting that Willard is included in an observance of Williston, Yellowstone Park's 150th anniversary. A few months after he became mayor in 1964, he agreed to work with Fred Martin, a newspaper editor in Livingston, to push Yellowstone as a winter recreation area. By the winter of 1965, when Willard attended the first Tri-State Trade and Tourist Seminar at Old Faithful Inn, he had succeeded in persuading the Yellowstone Park Company to move its offices to Billings. And in October, Yellowstone's annual birthday celebration was held at the Northern Hotel in Billings. In May of 1966, he was named Yellowstone's Man of the Year at the second Tri-State Seminar. As he promoted Billings in the park over the next six years, he was fond of repeating the statement that the park was in Billings' backyard. Fast forward to 1972, 50 years ago, when First Lady Pat Nixon and Secretary of the Interior Roger C.B. Morton visited Yellowstone to commemorate its 100th anniversary, they first stopped in Billings, where Mayor Fraser welcomed both of them and accompanied them to the park. Promoting Yellowstone was just one example of Fraser's passion for extolling the virtues of Montana. He wrote once, quote, modesty and humility about Montana are two qualities that I, as mayor, cannot afford to indulge in to any degree whatsoever. 
That was a very Willard Fraser. <laughs> Tourism and promoting Montana were on Fraser's mind from the moment he became mayor. He, of course, had his mind on his own city. Two months after his 1963 election, he declared that Swords Rimrock Park in Billings, which contains Yellowstone Kelly's grave, could become, quote, a beautiful tourist attraction. He likewise saw to it that Boot Hill Cemetery was publicly commemorated. But Fraser always proclaimed, I am not city limited. In August 1963, Fraser attended both Red Lodge's Festival of Nations and the Crow Fair, about which he stated, quote, there were 6,000 Indians there. It was tremendous and a real tourist attraction, unquote. A consistent supporter of tribal events and people, he chided his public, I saw very few Billings people there. The fair today is a major Montana event and attracts as many as 50,000 people. During the same summer, he began to focus attention on Pompey's Pillar when he petitioned the highway department to make sure the interstate would allow, quote, history-minded tourists, quote, easy access to the pillar. As you know, William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition carved his name and the date, July 25, 1806, on the pillar, a 150-foot high sandstone promontory 28 miles northeast of Billings. Willard's campaign to have Pompey's Pillar designated as a National Historic Landmark was finally successful. After a March 1965 letter, one of several, this guy was persistent, from Fraser to the National Park Service, Secretary of State Stuart Udall announced that the designation would occur and Pompey's Pillar was designated as a National Historic Site on July 10, 1965. This was great, but it wasn't quite enough for Willard, who liked to make the most of everything. To further dramatize the pillar's natural and historic draw, he invited William Clark Adrian, great-great-grandson of William Clark, to come and see his forebear's signatures. On July 19, Adrian Willard and other area historians climbed the pillar. In 2001, President Clinton ensured the pillar's preservation by declaring it a national monument. Willard was a student of Lewis and Clark's journey, and he felt Montana should make much of the fact that the expedition spent more time in Montana than in any other state, and he would know this. <laughs> This fed into another Fraser PR project, and Willard enticed Clark Adrian to participate in it as well. On the expedition's return trip, Captain Clark journeyed up the Yellowstone to meet Lewis at the confluence of the Yellowstone and Missouri, just over the present North Dakota border. And this is a simple map of the rivers of Montana, but it shows the Yellowstone, the Bighorn, and the Flathead, all three rivers that um, Willard was involved with. Despite his asthmatic condition, Willard had had some experience with the river floating on the Flathead and the Bighorn. Declaring that, 
quote, the Yellowstone's recreation potential has been too long ignored, unquote. In 1964, he conceived of a mayor's float trip to celebrate the beauty and history of what, at 692 miles, is the longest undammed river in America. The Yellowstone float trip would float the river 126 miles from Livingston to Billings. Beginning with just over, one, over 100 vessels the first year, the event swelled to more than 1,000 floaters in subsequent years, certainly due to Fraser's promotion. He invited Dr. Spock, John, poet John Chiardi, Clark Adrian, and scores of others. Spock and Chiardi came to Billings later, but Clark Adrian did participate in 1966, and writer A.B. Guthrie and people from as varied places as Sweden, Florida, Minnesota, and Colorado joined in other years. In selling the idea of the float, Willard wrote, quote, this is the hottest thing in recreation in America, for where is there a three-day float of this magnitude and excitement? Because of his salesmanship, the float was covered, and uh, forgive the quality of these, but uh, I thought it was important to show that they were covered in the Chicago Tribune, the National Observer, the Saturday Evening Post, Pepsi-Cola's magazine, the Denver Post, all of those magazines, and this was Willard's doing. It continues as a tourist attraction today. Fraser was a master at persuading people to visit Montana. He was undoubtedly Billings' most traveled mayor, and wherever he went, he invited people to come to Montana. When he spoke at an advertising convention in California, he invited the whole state of California to come to Montana for their convention. <laughs> Whenever he spotted anything in print that he felt misrepresented Montana, he immediately sent off a correction to the offending publication and always ended the letter by inviting the entire publication staff to Montana. And this is just as an example of when it hit the newspapers where he was sending one of those letters off. Willard invited everyone he knew and those he didn't know to come to Montana, but he felt it was particularly effective for tourism if well-known people visited. He posited that President Coolidge's working vacation in the Black Hills in 1927 had boosted the Black Hills as a tourist destination and South Dakota's economy. Thus, he, he invited President Johnson to numerous Montana events. Johnson never came, but others did succumb to Fraser's persuasion. When he invited astronaut Scott Carpenter to come to Billings, Carpenter said that after he received a number of letters, quote, urging him to come, he couldn't decline under such pressure. <laughs> Fraser used both his personal charisma and connections with the press to publicize Montana's charms. His knack for friendship paid dividends when he became a close friend of Grant Salisbury, an editor for the US News and World Report magazine. As Fraser friend Stu Connor said, quote, their friendship was a very good thing for Montana, unquote. 
Salisbury came to Montana several times and accompanied Willard on a float trip down the Flathead River. Um, and this is um, Willard in the sweater and the hat, and, and then uh, Grant Salisbury and Stu Connor on the right. Um, Stu Connor was also a student, uh, uh, an attorney, a city attorney, and a great friend of Willard's. And on the Flathead, uh, down the Bighorn River, just before Yellowtail Dam, uh, construction began. As a result, several articles about Montana appeared in the U.S. News and World Report. And I'm going to show some clips that are unfortunately are microfilmed, but it's just to demonstrate the extent of the publication that Montana got through Grant Salisbury. Fraser's influence is apparent in the article that appeared after the Bighorn River float in 1965. Willard had been a huge supporter of Yellowtail Dam, citing recreation as one benefit. And Salisbury sounds like Willard when he writes, quote, this reservoir will open a spectacular canyon to boating enthusiasts. Several photos for the article were taken on the Bighorn float. And here, Grant is interviewing Cal Taggart, who is the mayor of Lovell, Wyoming, who was also on the float. And Taggart is quoted on the expected growth from the dam. Salisbury referred to Billings in the article as a sun-drenched city. Surely a Fraser implant, as he writes, Billings in Montana also expects to benefit from recreation in the Bighorn Canyon area. Fraser then gets a direct quote, quote, we are getting a surprising amount of interest from people preparing to retire who are still active and have found that life out here can be pleasant the year around. The influence of the Fraser-Salisbury friendship can also be discerned in this later article that Salisbury wrote on Western art. He gives due coverage to the renowned Carter Museum of Western Art in Fort Worth and paintings in St. Louis and other cities. But the focus on Frederick Renner's comments on Montana artist Charlie Russell would certainly have been influenced by Willard. Other than Lewis and Clark's journey through Montana, George Armstrong Custer's defeat at the Battle of Little Bighorn is probably Montana's most famous historic event. And Fraser did what he could to attract visitors to that site and the events associated with it as well. In 1965, in promoting the reenactment of Custer's Last Stand, he wrote, quote, the thrill of watching the reenactment of Custer's Last Stand can't be matched by any tourist attraction in America, unquote. Besides inviting a swath of guests, including President Johnson, to the event, he managed to have it covered in the U.S. News and World Report, the National Observer, the Saturday Evening Post, and of course, the Montana Press Association gave it full coverage. Fraser was always on the side of the native tribes, and he got pretty exercised when he saw in print an idealization of Custer as a hero, he was one of the first people who said, you know, Custer, he was not a nice guy. Uh, and uh, this article was 
motivated because he spotted a postcard that idealized Custer, and so he objected. The enactment continued into the early 70s. It lapsed for a time. It was revived in 1990, and it continues today. Fraser led his support to another Custer-related project, the reburial of Major Marcus Reno from Custer's command. Reno's reputation had been under a shadow since being accused of cowardly behavior because he led his men in a retreat across the river when outflanked by warriors. He was buried in a nondescript grave in Washington, D.C. The campaign to bring Reno's body back to Custer National Cemetery began in 1966, but the ceremony didn't occur until September 1967. Ever a lover of pageantry and big events, Fraser, in charge of the guest committee, issued scores of invitations to the reburial ceremony, including the editor of Life magazine, Hubert Humphrey, Burton K. Wheeler, and Senators Mansfield and Metcalf. He later described it as, quote, the flashiest funeral in years. <laughs> Very soon after he became mayor, Fraser began a campaign to preserve a national, natural site containing evidence of the indigenous people who lived centuries before Lewis, Clark, or Custer. His interest in what were then called Indian caves would have been influenced by his experience working in the archaeological digs in the southwest. The caves, six miles south of Billings, contained pictographs and other evidence of prehistoric occupation. When he signed an agreement with the State Park Commission for Billings to administer the cave's 22 acres, the city council strongly objected because they were outside the city limits. But Willard said, I am not city limited. Undeterred, Fraser gained enough local support to establish a caves commission the only one in the nation, he bragged. And to convince the US Interior Department to designate the Indian Caves as a National Historic Landmark in 1964. Willard then proudly announced that the site would be added to the list of tourist attractions in Montana. In 1991, the Pictograph Caves became a state park. A plaque in the visitor center commemorates Fraser's contribution to preserving the cave and lists members of the Cave Commission. When Willard ran for his third term as mayor in 1967, he cited his work at promoting Montana as a tourist attraction as one of his accomplishments. I hope we have awakened more people to the wonders and potentials of recreation in this area, he said. He was duly re-elected and in another bow to Lewis and Clark, a year after his installation, he attended the dedication of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis in May of 1968, representing the Montana portion of the expedition. He brought a Montana sagebrush to St. Louis and declared it would make the city smell a whole lot better. <laughs> He also saw to it that Montana artist J.K. Ralston's Into the Unknown was installed in the center. Willard's third term, however, was marked with personal difficulty. 
When attending the mayor's conference in Chicago in the summer of 1968, he fell in the bathtub at Palmer House, broke his hip, and spent two months in hospitals in Chicago and Billings. In September, while he was still on crutches, he broke his kneecap when he fell on the steps on the town hall, necessitating more hospital time. Nevertheless, in January, he wrote, I spoke to a convention in Yellowstone Park this past weekend and reminded them, this is the age of miracles. In December, we went to the moon, and in January, the mayor of Billings went snowmobiling to Old Faithful, and I thought that was the greater of the two. <laughs> However, Willard's frail appearance likely played a role in his defeat in the 1969 election. During his two off years, Willard enjoyed the fruits of a campaign he had begun as mayor. He had successfully persuaded Stockbridge Productions to film the movie Little Big Man, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman and Faye Dunaway, and directed by Arthur Penn, on location in Montana. During the summer of 1969, Fraser was fully involved in serving as a resource to the producers. And of course, this very successful movie brought more attention to Willard and to Montana. He always shrugged off criticism of his attention-getting ways that any attention he got was also good for Montana. In 1971, a reinvigorated Fraser, a result partially due to dedicated bicycle riding, soundly beat incumbent mayor Harold Hultgren to earn his fourth term as mayor. They, the bicycle worked well as a symbol. In the next 16 months, Mayor Fraser continued to put Montana in the news. He always touted Montana's salubrious climate and objected to any opposing views from outsiders. In the fall of 1971, during a Chamber of Commerce tour of the state, he blamed Charlie Russell's damn cow <laughs> for giving Montana the reputation of having a frigid climate. Somehow, his comment was picked up by the press and it became a national story. He worked on new plans to increase recreational opportunities, a Calamity Jane Reservoir and Five Finger Lake project for the Billings area. He continued to entice visitors to Montana. At the 1971 Mayor's Conference in Baltimore, he invited Baltimore Mayor Thomas D'Alessandro brother of Nancy Pelosi, to Billings. D'Alessandro arrived in Billings that summer. At the 1972 Mayor's Conference, he joined forces with New York Mayor Lindsay in a proposal to dispose of junked cars. <coughs> he traveled Montana and the nation to spread the word about his beloved state. On September 18, 1972, Willard wrote probably the last of his hundreds of letters to Raphael Elliman in Tel Aviv. He wrote, quote, Yellowstone Park is in our backyard, and I am going there tomorrow with the wife of President Nixon to tuck in the bears and turn off the geysers. <laughs> and these are the last photos taken of Mayor Fraser. After a cold, rainy day in the park, 
with the Nixon entourage. He died that night in Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel at the age of 65. Pompey's pillar and pictograph caves are among the tangible legacies of his efforts to preserve Montana's historic wonders. A more intangible legacy is that of a politician who works selflessly for the good of his state. He radiated goodwill. He met criticism with humor. And as he once said, he had no enemies, only friends who don't know me well. <laughs> Before I leave, I want to introduce some very important people here. Willard's daughter, Robin Fraser Hudnut, is with us. Her son, David, her daughter, Marjorie, and their families. And Robin also is obviously the granddaughter of Robert Frost. So thank you, Robin. <laughs> <laughs>